Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm Josefina Chavarria, the director of the Peace Accords Matrix and an associate professor of the practice here at the Croc Institute. In this episode of the Croc Cast, we'll be having a very special conversation with the former president of Colombia and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Juan Manuel Santos. President Santos, welcome to the University of Notre Dame. Thank you, Josefina, and I thank the Croc Institute and the University of Notre Dame for having me in the university and in this podcast. Joining us today, we also have our two research professors in the PAM project and the Columbia Barometer Initiative, Professors Matav Joshi and Jason Quinn. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, audience. Happy to be talking to you today. Okay, happy to be here today. Thank you, Mr. President, for joining us. Well, thank you very much, President Santos and Professors uh, Madhav Joshi and Jason Quinn for being with us today. Setting the table for today's discussion for our listeners, the Colombia Final Agreement was signed in 2016 after four years of negotiation between the FARC-EP and the government of Colombia. The former guerrillas FARC were a rebel group that emerged in 1964, espousing a Marxist-Leninist ideology and fought against the government of Colombia for almost 60 years making it the second longest civil conflict in modern history. We will talk today about the design and implementation of the final accord that put an end to this cruel war, which left more than 9 million victims. First, let's talk about the negotiations. President Santos, the 1980s and 1990s saw many failed attempts to reach a peace deal. However, you were able to make the peace agreement successful. What were the keys to your success at the negotiation table? Well, it's very difficult to choose one single factor. Why is a peace process successful? Why others fail? There are many aspects that you can mention. I studied other peace processes, not only the ones that my predecessors attempted, and they all failed but other processes around the world, trying to identify those aspects, those conditions that could be applicable to the Colombian conflict and to the Colombian peace process. Because one golden rule is that there is no identical conflict. Each conflict has its own characteristics, its own conditions. I would say that one factor that contributed immensely to the success of the Colombian peace process was the support that I received since the beginning from the international community and specifically from our neighbors, from the region. In today's conflicts, in today's world, if you want to have peace, negotiate peace in any asymmetrical war, I would say that it's a necessary condition to have the support of your neighbors. I 
think, for example, that the difficulty for having peace, and many times he attempted, or the then President uh, Goni in Afghanistan, was precisely that he had no support of his neighbors for a peace process in Afghanistan. But in general, I think this is one important aspect. Another condition that I identified in the case of Colombia was that the military balance of power needed to be in favor of the state and that the commanders of the guerrillas, the ones that took the decisions, that in their personal lives, they would reach a point where for them it was better to negotiate peace than to continue the war. And uh, those conditions were, were created. I had the opportunity to contribute to the creation of those conditions as Minister of Defense before I was president. And I had the opportunity of creating the conditions of my neighbors and the international community when I became president. So that was, I think, a, a very important, very important environment that was created. This is, did not emerge out of the blue. It, it was created. The conditions necessary for successful peace process. I would add to that a specific step that we took that gave the process tremendous legitimacy, which was the law that we had approved called the law of victims and land restitution. This did many things, but um, I would underline the following. First, that in that law, the existence, the official existence of an armed conflict was established. Because before my predecessor, he had not recognized the existence of, one, of an armed conflict. And if you don't have an armed conflict, then you cannot apply transitional justice. And transitional justice is a necessary condition to have peace. But besides that, the fact of visualizing the victims even before signing the peace was a step that gave the process legitimacy not only with the international community, but also with the FARC. And the victims, in a way, became interested in the process. And where usually victims are reluctant to support a process because a process of transitional justice, in a way, what it does is give benefits, legal benefits, to the perpetrators. But I think this law contributed immensely to give credibility and trust, even to the FARC. Also, this law addressed something that was part of the origin of the conflict, the peasants. The FARC was a guerrilla that emerged from the rural areas. And the fact that we started to give the peasants who had been displaced by violence, by the conflict, the land back was a very powerful message to the FARC, and they acknowledged it, and to the rural population in general. 
President Santos, the Colombian Peace Agreement is recognized for being quite innovative and different from other peace accords in the past and in other places around the world. If you were to choose one or two features that you would like our audience to know more about uh, that innovations, which would be those one or two things you would highlight? Well, I would highlight that putting the victims in the heart of the negotiation and their rights, their rights in the Rome Statute, the rights to justice, to reparations, to the truth, and to non-repetition. Putting the victims and their rights at the center of the negotiation was the first time that this had been done. It's the first peace agreement that is negotiated under the umbrella of the Rome Statute with the support of the ICC. And I think this is a very important innovation. The tribunal that was created, first time ever also that two parties in conflict get together, they create a special tribunal to judge the most responsible of war crimes and crimes against humanity and accept submitting to that tribunal. That had never happened before. And maybe lastly, I would say the ambition of the, it's an agreement that not only addressed what is called the DDR, demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration, but addressed the causes of the conflict. And we tried to incorporate uh, the comprehensiveness of the agreement and the victims and their role. I think it's what I would uh, highlight here. Thank you very much for your insightful answer, Mr. President, which I'm confident that many of our students and faculty appreciate. Now, I would like to bring Malham and Jason into the conversation. I have a question for both of you, and I'd be happy to hear your answer. How does the Colombian Accord compare with agreements of the past several decades? If I may start with you, Madhav. That's a very nice question. That's what we have been doing here for the last five, six years. I would say the long-term rural reform vision is is innovative. Of course, there is a lot going on here, from land distribution to establishing seed banks in rural communities in, in Colombia. The bottom-up political participation space created by the peace agreement is also kind of unique. Those who are trying to solve the issue of armed conflict talk about Colombia as a model these days. When I was in the Philippines, Mindanao, last summer, the parties there were talking about how they can use the Colombian model of civil society engagement. When I was in Nepal, after the Philippines, they wanted to know about the Colombia's victim-centric transitional justice efforts, how they did it, that we can do here. The 2016 Accord invites more than 30 different international entities for accompaniment roles in an implementation process. I have not seen this level of international accompaniment in other peace processes. And data clearly shows the significant role that these entities are having in the implementation process. So Colombia is a model, and it stands out in many dimensions, in many ways. Jason, would you like to add something to that? Sure, thank you. So since 1989, there's been approximately 40 comprehensive peace agreements signed in a civil war setting. So Colombia would be 
probably um, around roughly the 40th one. Uh, there's a number of innovating things about the Colombian agreement, you know, including its uh, differential approach, uh, transversal approach, or what people call the differential approach. And uh, basically what this approach, it's a simple idea, but it hasn't been done before. This idea that, you know, the whole country isn't adversely affected by the war equally, right? So you should try to reconstruct, you know, perform reconstruction and in terms of distribution of resources and help, you know, et cetera. You know, some, the places that had, that were damaged the worst should get the most recovery, right? So yeah, unbelievably, that seems like a simple idea, but that has not been tried before. Now it's another topic on whether uh, you know how to learn from the Colombian experience on how to possibly better operationalize that differential approach going forward. But I think that Colombia has really hit on an idea here that I think that in the next few decades is going to be you know honed in and advanced in a lot of ways. I think besides that, I would say from our perspective, you know, Madhav and I started providing research support 2012 to the negotiations. We covered a lot of different topics, but, you know, basically the thread that ran through all of those topics was the importance of implementation planning and verification. So in 2000, uh, at the end of 2014, uh, Madhav and I proposed the idea that you know, verification is important. We know that we can prove that empirically uh, in previous processes, but those processes also had a number of weaknesses. And we weren't really seeing a lot of innovation out in the peacemaking world in terms of correcting that, right? For one thing, previous verification mechanisms had a pretty short attention span. They seemed to be robust, but only for a year or two. And then after that, they kind of faded off. But that has important consequences for the type of content that gets the best monitoring because right, all of the content is not implemented at the same time. It's sequenced in certain ways. So if you pay most attention at the very beginning, that means that your DDR and your things like that are going to get the most verification. But your long-term implementation processes you know, that deal with the reparations and all the things that the people care most about, those would receive less attention. Another thing was that the verification mechanisms of the past were, um, you know, that we saw areas for improvement in terms of how they could be more open, more transparent in terms of uh, providing more evidence and more sources. Uh, you know, we, we kind of realized that looking at the way that these things have worked in the past is that, I mean, what constitutes implementation? Right. I mean, the accord sometimes has ambiguous and general language, you know, the issue of what constitutes implementation and what constitutes evidence and sources, you know, that's those are socially contested concepts. So I think ours is the first verification mechanism that really takes that to heart and says that, you know, even what constitutes implementation and evidence and sources is open to dispute. And so we take, you know, a number of we, you know, we it can't go into it now, but we handle that through a number of different ways, right? Such as uh, consulting civil society groups, for example, women's groups were consulted in terms of constructing the coding rules for the, you know, for the gender chapter, and, all, and some of those things things happened uh, in the ethnic chapter. So uh, in 2014, Madhav and I proposed a model that would essentially build on the strengths of the past, but also try to 
correct some of the weaknesses that we saw over the past 30 years in verification mechanisms. And so we called that the barometer initiative. The, uh, as you know, the parties at the table thought that that was a good innovative idea. They wanted Columbia to be the model for the future, which it is. Uh, so that model was accepted. And for the past five years, we've been carrying out that project. So we're in the fifth year now. There's a uh, an empirical quantitative data set. Uh, so empirically quantitative minded uh, scientists can study the data. There's also a corresponding qualitative data set. So qualitative researchers can. And in the qualitative data set, you know, there we show the evidence and the sources for every decision that we've made in terms of for every commitment in the agreement. Thank you very much, both Matt and Jason, for your invaluable support also, as you were saying, during the process of negotiation and uh, in the past six years during implementation. For the last part of this conversation, I would like to focus on the current state of the agreement and the different implementation challenges that we have you know, seen and measured and observed and written about through a barometer initiative. I will ask Madhav and Jason about the agreement and implementation challenges, and I would be very grateful, President Santos, and pleased if you would give the last word. So I was wondering, Madhav, can you share with us what is the current state of implementation and how about those challenges? Thank you, Josefina. As for the current state, uh, the way the academics you know, measure success is whether the country went back to war or not. That is one of the one of the ways they understand. I mean, I can talk about implementation for hours, you know, where <laughs> the, the, it has progressed, where uh, it is lagging behind. But the Colombia, you know, we have to understand uh, the, the country here fighting wars for over 60 years. And Colombia has had, since the signing of the 2016 peace agreement, Colombia has had pure armed conflict-related deaths and displacement. And I think that is a success in the last 60 years. So the lowest level of conflict-related deaths and displacement. But also, you know, we also have to understand that many in Colombians, they are not happy about the peace accord implementation, right? You know, it, I think it is the not the disagreement, but the way we understand success and failure. So they have a very short vision of success. You know, they are dealing with immediate needs. Perhaps that is the reason. But in the long term, this particular peace accord will emerge very successfully for the type of reform, for the type of you know, transformation that it is envisioning. We just have to give more time and implement more robustly. That's, that, that's what I would like to say. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Jason, is there from your side something that we might be missing in that picture that you would like to bring to our attention? Well, in terms of the challenges to implementation, I think certainly the one that, that essentially captures everything is the enormous scope of the effort. As I said, there, were, there have been roughly 40 agreements, comprehensive agreements that meet our criteria in the past 30 years. I don't think that people understand the scope of the Colombian agreement, what an ambitious agreement it is, but over half of the previous agreements you could fit inside the Colombian agreement, you would still have room to spare. I mean, how do you even start to talk about how enormous this is, how many, you know, the level of commitments, the number of commitments, I mean, is far greater than anything we've seen before. But some people might say, well, yeah, it has a lot of commitments, but they're not that difficult or they're easy or something to that effect, right? Well, we can easily look at that. We know the categories 
of content, you know, from the past, and we can look at what has high levels of implementation and what has low levels, right? So our project follows 50 different categories of content. Most all of the Colombian content (laughs) is in the hardest to implement provisions, right? I mean, it's staggering. I mean, it's more content than ever before, and almost all of it falls in the most difficult categories that historically have had the lowest levels of implementation, right? So I'll, I can sum this up by saying that, or rather, you know, synthesize those statements into saying that, I mean, this is not a front-loaded agreement where there's a quick implementation and a quick payoff. This is, you know, to use word from like the sports arena or business, you know, this is a back-loaded contract where you've got to stick with it to the very end in order to get most of the benefits. There's never been a peace agreement that had 10 to 15 year timetables regarding the majority of content. Thank you very much, Jason. President Santos, we would love to hear your thoughts on the implementation process so far and the future of both peace building, but also reconciliation. On top of what uh, Madhav and Jason have said, I, I would add the following. This agreement was signed with the FARC. That was the oldest and most powerful guerrilla movement at that time of the Western Hemisphere. And uh, around 93, 95% of the FARC members who signed are still accounted for. This is uh, a much higher percentage of the average number of guerrillas or insurgents that uh, in other agreements have been maintained in the process. So this is a measure of success, I think. Now, another measure of success is that the agreement went through a very difficult time with a hostile government who was elected campaigning against the peace process. And uh, this government uh, realized that because of the pressure of the international community, pressure from the inside also, and because of the Constitutional Court and even the Colombian Congress, that it could not derail the agreement. And uh, it uh, maybe did not advance as much as all would have liked to, but uh, the fact that for four years, the agreement was able to uh, keep going. And now we have a government that has been elected among other reasons because it has promised to implement the totality of the agreement. I think this is good news. Of course, in the implementation, there's always difficulties. There's always contradictions. But what I hope is that this government will put in place the fundamental aspects that are still lacking In my view, the rule reform, this is one of the backbones of the agreement, and also that it will be effective in stopping the killings of members of the FARC, former members of the FARC and of the social leaders. It has a tremendous challenge uh, with respect to the point four of the agreement, the drug issue. I think that the Current president is correct in his approach to change the whole 
war on drugs and change the, the parameters of this war because this war has been a failure. And I want to also add something now that I am here at the Notre Dame and with the Kroc Institute. I think that the role that the Kroc Institute has played during the negotiation and after the negotiation, mere fact of allowing the world and allowing us in Colombia to compare with other peace processes and to tell us where we have advanced and where we have not has been extremely, extremely important. Because when you study other peace processes, many of them simply fade away or simply they're not, they don't follow through. There's a commitment here to follow through and the institution that is in charge of verifying that we will follow through is the Kroc Institute. And uh, the work that the Kroc Institute has done has uh, in a way also empowered the Kroc Institute because of its seriousness, that every time that they say something, they're objective, they're credible. And I think that for the peace process, not only for the Colombian, in the future, if they want to implement the peace agreements, a structure of this sort has uh, been proven very useful, and I hope that it will be replicated. So I only have words of gratitude and of congratulations to all the people who have been working in the Colombian peace process from Notre Dame with the Kroc Institute and encourage them to continue. We are, in a way, doing something new. And you always, there's trials and errors and always there's mistakes, but I think we can learn from the mistakes and you have done a very, very important job and we appreciate it. And I can tell you from Colombia as one of the persons who signed the agreement that it has been extremely, extremely useful. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Those are really very important words for us because they, they, they fill us not only with, doesn't just make us very happy, but it also, it's very humbling to hear that from one of the signatories of the agreement. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all very much to Madhav, Jason, and all our community, our audience here accompanying us today in the Crowdcast. It has been really wonderful to learn more about the peace process in Colombia, and we will make sure that we continue telling you and sharing more with you about the implementation. And finally, thank you, dear President Santos, for all your contributions to peace in Colombia and also for being with us at the University of Notre Dame. Well, thank you all, and I hope I can be back soon. Yes, I hope so too. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Thanks for listening.